When the NWO destroys Hey, hey, you guys, what's up, everybody? Welcome, friends, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers to the brave new world order straight out the catacombs of podcasting i am brandon saint one thank you everybody for joining me for this episode we are going to dive a little bit into the john f kennedy assassination and the mysterious gemstone file as well as explore a little bit of operation northwoods and operation mongoose which may have led to him being killed I thought it would be cool since this week marks the 60th anniversary of his assassination to do an episode, and I thought the gemstone file would be cool to go through because I've never really heard about it before, to be honest, so I thought I would go through it with you guys, and you can come along with me on this journey. And what the gemstone file is is a document. It's a list of dates and events that outline interlocking conspiracies starting in the 1950s, and it proposes that Aristotle Onassis, Joseph Kennedy, and other prominent figures were involved in various schemes to forward a vast global conspiracy that involved the mafia, corrupt politicians, oil and drug cartels, rogue military operations, and much more. And it also outlines how Aristotle Onassis kidnapped Howard Hughes and had him replaced with a body double that Hughes was already using as a body double in public. So I think it's pretty fascinating. I hope that you do too. And if you like the Brave New World Order, please like, share, subscribe, leave a review, head over to Spotify and answer the Q&A that's attached to every episode. I love hearing from each and every one of you. Thank you so much. So we will jump into the John F. Kennedy assassination, the Gemstone File, and Operation Northwoods, and Operation Mongoose. But real quick. All right. Let's one dive headfirst into the abyss. Now let's get to the gemstone file document. And it lists a bunch of dates and these key events that happened. So we're just going to go through it. 1932. Onassis. That is Aristotle Onassis. Future husband of the widowed Jacqueline Kennedy. So in 1932, Onassis, a Greek ship owner who made his first million selling Turkish tobacco, opium, in Argentina, worked out a profitable deal with Joseph Kennedy, Eugene Meyer, and Meyer Lansky, importing bootleg liquor into the United States. 1934, Onassis, Rockefeller, and the Seven Sisters those are the major oil companies at the time, signed an agreement outlined 
in an oil cartel memo. Screw the Arabs out of their oil. Transport it on Onassis's ships. This was done, and those who did it considerably increased their already vast wealth. Roberts, studying journalism and physics at the University of Wisconsin, learned these things via personal contacts. His special interest was crystallography, the creation of synthetic rubies, the original gemstone experiment. 1936 through 1940, Eugene Meyer buys the Washington Post and other mafia buy other papers, radio stations, etc., to gain control of news media. As the war approaches, news censorship of all major media goes into effect. 1941 through 1945, World War II, which was very profitable for Onassis, Rockefeller, Kennedy, the Roosevelts, IEG Farben, ITT, etc. Onassis and Rockefeller barter oil for German oil tankers. ITT Falk Wolf planes bomb the Allies and its telephones pass information to German submarines. IG Farben builds synthetic fuel and rubber plant at Auschwitz. Onassis and Rockefeller sell arms and oil to both sides. At the end of the war, Nazi experts assimilated into the Pentagon infiltrate to the highest levels. Alan Dulles, in partnership with ex-Nazi General Reinhard Galen, forms a new agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA which we all know and love. 1946, Eugene Meyer becomes head of the World Bank. Ex-Nazi Klaus Barbie, also known as the Butcher of Lions, smuggled to Bolivia by CIA, helps set up P2 Lodge and Ordine Nuovo with Italian neo-fascist Licio Gelli. November 1948, Onassis and Rockefeller form a new company, Aramco, and devise the golden gimmick. Oil royalties deducted from companies' tax bills. 1949, Onassis buys U.S. war surplus Liberty ships. Inquestionable illegal purchase. Lawyer Burke Marshall helps him. Rockefeller protege Eugene Black takes over the World Bank and later appointed to the board of ITT. 1953, Seven Sisters oil profits in Iran threatened by Mossadegh. CIA's Kermit Roosevelt organizes coup with money funneled through CIA's Deke Bank. Shah installed and secret participants agreement drawn up by Seven Sisters lawyer John McCloy. 1954, Onassis uses I.G. Farben's Prince Bernhard to preside at first secret meeting 
of Bilderberg Group held at Oosterbeck, Holland. Members include U.S. and European financiers, government officials, etc. Bilderberg to play a key role in setting up EEC, NATO, Cold War strategy, and the Trilateral Commission. 1956, Howard Hughes, Texas millionaire, is meanwhile buying his way into control of the U.S. electoral process with a view to his own personal gain. He buys senators, governors, etc. He finally buys his last politician, newly elected Vice President Richard Nixon, via a quarter million dollar non-repayable loan to Nixon's brother Donald. Early 1957, Nixon repays the favor by having Internal Revenue Service and Treasury grant tax-free status, which was refused twice before, to Hughes Medical Foundation, sole owner of Hughes Aircraft, creating a tax-free, non-accountable money funnel or laundry for whatever Hughes wanted to do. United States government antitrust suits against Hughes, TWA airline, and other enterprises also shelved. March 1957. Onassis carries out a carefully planned action. He has Hughes kidnapped from his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel using Hughes' own men, Chester Davis and others. The other Hughes men either quit, get fired, or stay on in the new Onassis organization. A few days later, Mayor Cannon, now Senator Cannon of Nevada, arranges a fake marriage to Gene Peters to explain Hughes' sudden loss of interest in chasing movie stars. Hughes, battered and brain damaged by mafia treatment, is taken to the Emerald Isles Hotel in the Bahamas, where the entire top floor has been rented for the Hughes party. Hughes is shot full of heroin for 30 days, then taken off to a cell on Onassis's Scorpios Island, where he spent the rest of his life. Onassis now has a much larger power base in the United States, the Hughes Empire, as well as control over Nixon and other Hughes-purchased politicians. L. Wayne Rector, who had been acting as Hughes' double since 1955, now becomes Hughes. See, that's why I wanted to talk about this. I think that's nuts. I've never heard anything like this about the Kennedy assassination and how Howard Hughes and Aristotle Onassis were playing all these types of games behind the scenes and that they actually replaced Hughes with one of his doubles. It's pretty wild shit. So on September 1957, Onassis calls the Appalachian meeting to inform U.S. mafia leaders of his control of Hughes and his adoption of Hughes's method of acquiring power, buying high-ranking politicians en masse to gain control of the U.S. government legally. 
Onassis's radio message to Appalachian from a remote Pennsylvania farmhouse is intercepted reluctantly by FBI's J. Edgar Hoover on the basis of a tip-off from some Army intelligence guys who weren't in on the plan. Also, in 1957, Joseph Kennedy takes John F. Kennedy and Jackie to see Onassis on his yacht, introduce John, and remind Onassis of an old mafia promise. The president's for a Kennedy, and Onassis agrees. 1958, hordes of mafia selected, purchased, and supported grassroots candidates sweep into office. 1959, Castro takes over Cuba from dictator Batista, thereby destroying the cozy and lucrative mafia gambling empire run for Onassis by Meyer Lansky. Castro scoops up $8 million in mafia casino receipts. Onassis is furious. Vice President Nixon becomes operations chief for CIA-planned Bay of Pigs invasion using CIA Hunt, McCord, etc., and Cuban ex-Batista strong-arm cops, which are Cuban freedom fighters, Martinez, Gonzalez, and others, as well as winners like Frank Sturgis. 1959. Stirring election battle between Kennedy and Nixon. Either way, Onassis wins, since he has control over both candidates. 1960. JFK elected, American people happy, Rose Kennedy happy, Onassis happy, Mafia ecstatic. Roberts brings his synthetic rubies, the original gemstones, to Hughes' aircraft in Los Angeles. They steal his rubies, the basis for laser beam research, laser bombs, etc., because of the optical quality of the rubies. One of the 11 possible sources for one of the ingredients involved in the gemstone experiment was the Golden Triangle area. Roberts was married to the daughter of the former French consul in Indochina. In that area, Onassis's involvements in the Golden Triangle dope trade was no secret. Roberts's investigation revealed the Onassis-Hughes connection, kidnap, and switch. Gemstones, synthetic rubies, and sapphires with accompanying histories, gemstone papers, were sold or given away to consular officials in return for information. A worldwide information network was gradually developed a trade of the intelligence activities of many countries. This intelligence network is the source for much of the information in the gemstone file. January 1961, Joseph Kennedy had a stroke, ending his control over John and Bobby. The boys decide to rebel against Onassis's control. Why? Inter-mafia struggle, perhaps? Maybe a dim hope of restoring this country 
to its mythical integrity, they began committing mafia no-nos, arrested Wally Bird, who is the owner of Air Thailand, and who had been shipping Onassis's heroin out of the Golden Triangle under contract with the CIA. Then they arrested Teamster Mafia Jimmy Hoffa and put him in jail, declared the 73 million in forged Hughes land liens deposited with San Francisco's Bank of America as security for the TWA judgment against Hughes to be what they are, forgeries. April 1961, CIA Bay of Pigs fiasco, Hunt, McCord, CIA, Batistas, Cubans, and Mafia angry about JFK's lack of enthusiasm. Mafia Onassis has his U.S. right-hand man, Hughes's top aide, former FBI and CIA, Robert Mayhew, nicknamed IBM for Iron Bob Mayhew. Hire and train a mafia assassination team to get to Castro. The team of a dozen or so includes John Roselli and Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, who were expert mafia hitmen. Assisted by CIA Hunt and McCord and others. This was reported recently by Jack Anderson, who gets a lot of his tips from his friend, Frank Florini Sturgis. Also, on the Castro assassination team, the team tries five times to kill Castro with everything from long-ranged rifles to apple pie with sodium morphate in it. Castro survives. 1963. Members of the Castro assassination team arrested at Lake Pontchartrain, Louisiana by Bobby Kennedy's Justice Boys. Angered, Onassis stops trying to kill Castro. He changes targets and decides to go for the head, who is John F. Kennedy, who, according to Onassis, welched on a mafia deal. JFK sets up Group of 40 to fight Onassis. August 1963, two murders had to occur before the murder of JFK or people would understand the situation and might squawk. The first being Senator Estes Kefauver, whose crime commission investigations had uncovered the 1932 deal between Onassis, Kennedy, Eugene Meyer, Lansky, Roosevelt, and the others. Kefauver planned a speech on the Senate floor denouncing mafia operations. Instead, he ate a piece of apple pie laced with sodium morphate and had a sodium morphate-induced heart attack on the Senate floor. The other person who needed to go was Philip Graham, editor of the Washington Post. Philip had married Catherine Meyer, Eugene Meyer's daughter, who had inherited the Washington Post and allied media empire. Graham put together the Kennedy-Johnson ticket and was Kennedy's friend in the struggle with Onassis. According to Gemstone, Catherine Meyer Graham bribed some psychiatrists to certify that Phil 
was insane. He was allowed out of the nut house for the weekend and died of a shotgun wound in the head in the Graham home in Washington. The death ruled a suicide. November 1st, 1963. The hit on JFK was supposed to take place in true mafia style, a triple execution, together with DM and New in Vietnam. DM and New got theirs as scheduled. Onassis had invited Jackie for a cruise on the Christina, where she was when JFK got tipped off that big O planned to wipe him out. JFK called Jackie on the yacht from the White House, hysterical. Get off that yacht if you have to swim, and canceled appearance at a football stadium in Chicago, where the CIA mafia assassination team was poised for the kill. Jackie stayed on board, descended the gangplank a few days later on Onassis's arm in Turkey to impress the Turkish Bey, Mustafa. Madame New in the United States bitterly remarked, whatever has happened in Vietnam. One of the assassination team, Tom Malley, a double for Oswald, was picked up in Chicago with a rifle and quickly released by the police. Three weeks later, the Mafia's alternate and carefully arranged execution plan went into effect. JFK was assassinated in Dallas. A witness who recognized pictures of some of the people arrested at Daly Plaza as having been in Chicago three weeks earlier told Black Panthers Hampton and Clark. The details of the JFK murder. Onassis and Hughes' hitman Robert Mayhew reassigned the Mafia CIA Castro assassination team to the murder of JFK, adding Eugene Brading, a third Mafia hitman from the Denver Mafia Smaldonis family. Two months earlier, Brading, on parole after a series of crimes, applied for a new driver's license, explaining to the California DMV that he had decided to change his name to Jim Braden. Braden got his California parole officer's permission for two trips to Dallas. In November, on oil business, the first time to look things over, and the second time when JFK was scheduled for his Dallas trip. Lee Harvey Oswald, CIA, with carefully planted links to both the ultra-right and to the communists, was designated as the patsy. He was supposed to shoot Governor Connolly, and he did. Each of the four shooters, Oswald, Brading, Fratiano, and Roselli, had a timer and a backup plan. Backup men were supposed to pick up the spent shells and get rid of the guns. Timers would give the signal to shoot. Hunt and McCord were there to help. Sturgis was in Miami. Fratiano shot from a second-story window in the Dow Tex building across the street from the Texas Book Depository. He apparently used a handgun. He is an excellent shot with a pistol. Fratiano hit Kennedy twice, in the back and in the head. 
Fratiano and his backup man were arrested, driven away from the Daltex building in a police car, and released without being booked. The Dallas police office is in the Daltex building. Roselli shot Kennedy once, hitting the right side of his head and blowing his brains out with a rifle from behind a fence in the grassy knoll area. Roselli and his timer went down a manhole behind the fence and followed the sewer line away from Dealey Plaza. The third point of the triangulated ambush was supplied by Eugene Brading, shooting from Kennedy's left from a small pagoda at Dealey Plaza. Across the street from the grassy knoll, Brading missed because Roselli's and Fratiano's shot had just hit Kennedy in the head from the right and the rear, nearly simultaneously. Brading's shot hit the curb and ricocheted off. Brading was photographed on the scene, stuffing his gun under his coat. He wore a big leather hat, its hatband marked with large, conspicuous X's. Police had been instructed to let anyone with an X-marked hatband through the police lines. Some may have been told they were Secret Service. After his shot, Brading ditched his gun with his backup man and walked up the street toward the Daltex building. Roger Craig, a deputy sheriff, rushed up to Brading, assuming he was Secret Service, and told him he had just seen a man come out of the book depository and jump into a station wagon. Brading was uninterested. Brading walked into the Daltex building to make a phone call. There, he was arrested by another deputy sheriff, showed his Jim Braden driver's license, and was released without being booked. Oswald shot Connolly twice from the Texas book depository. He split from the front door. His backup man was supposed to take the rifle out of the building, or so Oswald thought. Instead, he hid it behind some boxes where it would later be found. Three men dressed as tramps picked up the spent shells from Dealey Plaza. One was Howard Hunt. Then they drifted over to an empty boxcar sitting on a railway spur behind the grassy knoll area and waited. A Dallas police officer ordered two Dallas cops to go over to the boxcar and pick up the tramps. The three tramps paraded around Daly Plaza to the police department in the Daltex building. They were held there until the alarm went out to pick up Oswald. Then they were released without being booked. In all, 10 men were arrested immediately after the shooting. All were released soon after. None were booked. Not a word about their existence is mentioned in the Warren report. Regarding Lee Harvey Oswald, Officer Tippett was dispatched in his police radio car to the Oak Cliff section where Oswald had rented a room. Tippett may have met Oswald on the street. He may have been supposed to kill Oswald, but something went wrong. Tippett was shot by two men using two revolvers. The witness, Domingo Benavidez, who used Tippett's police car radio to report, we've had a shooting here, 
may have been one of the men who shot him. A Domingo Benavidez appears in connection with the Martin Luther King shooting also. Oswald went to the movies. A shoe store manager told the theater cashier that a suspicious-looking man had sneaked in without paying. Fifteen assorted cops and FBI charged out to the movie theater to look for the guy who had sneaked in. Oswald had a pistol that wouldn't fire. It may have been anticipated that the police would shoot the cop killer for resisting arrest. But since that didn't happen, the Dallas police brought Oswald out for small-time mafia Jack Ruby to kill two days later. Braiding stayed at the Teamster Mafia Hoffa Finance Cabana Hotel in Dallas. Ruby had gone to the cabana the night before the murder, says the Warren Report. The rest, as they say, is history. Onassis was so confident over his control over the police, media, FBI, CIA, Secret Service, and the U.S. judicial system that he had JFK murdered before the eyes of the entire nation, then systematically bought off, killed off, or frightened off all witnesses and had the evidence destroyed, then put a 75-year seal of secrecy over the entire matter. Cover-up participants included, among many, Gerald Ford on the Warren Commission, a Nixon recommendation, CIA attorney Leon Jaworski of the CIA Front Anderson Foundation, representing Texas before the commission to see that the fair name of Texas was not besmirched by the investigation, CIA Dallas Chief John McCone, his assistant Richard Helms, and a pastel of police, FBI, news media, etc. Well, where are they now? Johnny Pacelli received part of his payoff for the headshot on JFK in the form of a $250,000 finder's fee for bringing Hughes to Las Vegas in 1967. Jimmy Fratiano's payoff included $109,000 in non-refundable payable loans from the San Francisco National Bank. President Joe Alotto made that call. Credit authorization for the series of loans for 1961 through 1965 came from Alotto and a high Teamster official. Dunn and Bradstreet noted this transaction in amazement, listing the loans in their 1964 through 1965 monthly reports and wondering how Fratiano could obtain so much credit as his only known title was Mafia Executioner. Fratiano went around for years bragging about it. Hi there, I'm Jimmy Fratiano, Mafia Executioner. A bank VP told the whole story to the California Crime Commission where Al Harris heard it and it was hidden in a file folder there. Al Harris 
who later shot his mouth off a little too much, was heart attacked. When last seen, March of 1975, Bratiano was testifying before a San Francisco grand jury in regard to his participation with East Coast Mafia Tony Romano in the Sunal Golf Course swindle, which cost San Francisco somewhere between 100000 and 500000 This was with the active help of Mayor John Aliato. In between, Bratiano used his 109000 in non-repayable loans to start a trucking company in the Imperial Valley, where he engaged in a lot more swindling involving U.S. government construction contracts. As one California Crime Commission member explained, the mafia is doing business directly with the U.S. government now. Braiding was questioned by the FBI two months after his arrest and release at Dallas as part of the Warren Commission's determination to quote-unquote leave no stone unturned in its quest for the truth about the JFK assassination. In spite of the fact that Braiding was a known criminal with an arrest record dating back about 20 years, the FBI reported that Braiding knew nothing whatsoever about the assassination. Braiding became a charter member of the La Costa County Country Club, Mafia Heaven down near San Clemente. He also became a runner for the skim money from the Onassis Hughes Las Vegas casinos to Onassis's Swiss banks. Gerald Ford of the Warren Commission went on to become president by appointment of Nixon, then in danger of even further and more serious exposure, from which position the trust Ford pardoned Nixon one month later for any and all crimes he may have committed. That covers quite a lot, but Ford is good at covering things up. McCone, the head of CIA Dallas, went on to become a member of the ITT Board of Directors, sitting right next to Francis L. Dale, the head of Creep. Richard Helms, McCone's assistant at Dallas, ultimately was rewarded with the post of CIA director. Leon Jaworski, CIA attorney, became the Watergate prosecutor, replacing Cox, who was getting too warm. Jaworski turned in a sterling performance in our government as theater, quote-unquote, the honest, conscientious investigator who, quote-unquote, uncovered not a bit more than he had to and managed to steer everybody away from the underlying truth. Dr. Red Duke, the man who dug two bullets out of Connolly and saved his life, was shipped off to a hospital in Afghanistan by a grateful CIA. Jim Garrison, New Orleans DA who tried to get Eugene Braiding out of Louisiana, but used one of Braiding's other aliases, Eugene Bradley by mistake, 
had his witnesses shot out from under him and was framed on charges of bribery and extortion. FBI officers confiscated photos of braiding taken on the scene, along with other evidence. After JFK's death, Onassis quickly established control over Lyndon Johnson through fear. On the trip back to Washington, Johnson was warned by radio, relayed from an Air Force base. There was no conspiracy. Oswald was a lone nut assassin. Get it, Lyndon? Otherwise, Air Force One might have an unfortunate accident on flight back to Washington. Onassis filled all important government posts with his own men. All government agencies became means to accomplish an end. Rifle the American treasury, steal as much as possible, keep the people confused and disorganized and leaderless, pursue world domination. JFK's original group of 40 was turned over to Rockefeller and his man, Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, that is, that douchebag, so that they could more effectively fuck over South America. Onassis was one of the first to console Jackie when she got back from Dallas with JFK's body. Silva, a San Francisco private detective hired by Angelina Aliotto to get the goods on philandering Joe, followed Joe Aliotto to Vacaville to the Nut Tree Restaurant, where Joe held a private meeting with other mafioso to arrange the details of the JFK assassination payoff to Fratiano. 1967, Onassis has always enjoyed the fast piles of money to be made through gambling. In Monaco and in Cuba under Batista, Onassis took over Las Vegas in 1967 via the body double of Hughes, who was a man named L. Wayne Rector, who was hired around 1955 by Carl Bior PR agency that was Hughes' Louisiana PR firm, and he was hired to act as Hughes' double in public because Hughes was kind of a recluse, and he used this double for these appearances. So in 1957, when Onassis seized control of Hughes, and he drugged him up and removed him from power, he used this L. Wayne Rector, so that in 1967, when Onassis took over Las Vegas, the United States government explained that it was okay, because at least Hughes wasn't the mafia. So Onassis used this stand-in of Hughes in Las Vegas, but this Robert Mayhew actually ran the show. Mayhew got his orders from Onassis, the six nursemaids called the Mormon Mafia, kept Rector sealed off from prying eyes. June 17, 1968, Bobby Kennedy knew who killed his brother. He wrote about it in his unpublished book, the enemy within. When he foolishly tried to run for president, Onassis had him killed. Using a sophisticated new technique at the time, MKUltra, 
they used a hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan to shoot from the front while security guard from Lockheed Aircraft Thane Caesar shooting from two or three inches away from Bobby's head from the rear. Sirhan's shot all missed. Caesar's couldn't possibly have missed. Evel Younger, then the Los Angeles DA, covered it all up, including the squawks of Los Angeles coroner Thomas Noguchel. Younger was rewarded with the post of California Attorney General later. His son, Eric Younger, got a second-generation mafia reward, a judgeship at age 30. After Bobby's death, Teddy knew who did it. He ran to Onassis, afraid for his life, and swore eternal obedience. In return, Onassis granted him his life and said he could be president too, just like his big brother, if he would just behave himself and follow orders. All right, that was the gemstone file. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I do. I find it to be really interesting fascinating and just fun to think about and to go through but now we're going to talk about operation northwoods and operation mongoose just a little bit because these events most likely were factors in the assassination of jfk aristotle onassis says that jfk welched on some deals and cuba was probably part of it he was supposed to probably go along with an invasion and all the attacks that they were proposing to manufacture consent for such invasion. So let's look into it a little bit. Let's talk about Operation Northwoods, which was a proposed not-so-true flag operation that the U.S. Department of Defense of the United States government in 1962 put on the desk of John F. Kennedy, the soon-to-be-assassinated president. The proposals called for CIA operatives to both stage and commit acts of terrorism against American military and civilian targets, blaming them on the Cuban government and using it to justify a war against Cuba. The possibilities in the document included the remote control of civilian aircraft which would be secretly repainted as u.s air force plane a fabricated shoot down of a u.s air force fighter aircraft off the coast of cuba the possible assassination of cuban immigrants sinking boats of cuban refugees on the high seas blowing up a united states ship and orchestrating terrorism in United States cities. These proposals were ultimately rejected by the President John F. Kennedy at the time. Tensions were high at the time with Fidel Castro and Cuba. The operation proposed creating public support for a war against Cuba by blaming the Cuban government for terrorist attacks that would be perpetrated by the United States government. To this end, Operation Northwood's proposals recommended hijackings and bombings, followed by the introduction of false evidence that would implicate the Cuban government. 
it stated the desired result from the execution of this plan would be to place the United States in the apparent position of suffering defensible grievances from a rash and irresponsible government of Cuba and to develop an international image of a Cuban threat to peace in the Western Hemisphere. This thing was riddled with all types of proposals, including real or simulated actions against various United States military and civilian targets. The operation recommended developing a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington, D.C. This was to involve the bombing of civilian targets, which was to be blamed on the Cuban government, to paint a false image of Fidel Castro, and to misinform the American public. This plan was drafted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, signed by Chairman Lyman Lemnitzer, and sent to the Secretary of Defense. The main Operation Northwoods proposal was presented in a document titled Justification for United States Military Intervention in Cuba. It was a top-secret collection of draft memoranda written by the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The document was presented by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara on March 13, 1962 as a preliminary submission for planning purposes. The Joint Chiefs recommended that both the covert and overt aspects of any such operation be assigned to them. This document was classified until it was made public on November 18, 1997 by the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Review Board, a U.S. federal agency that was overseeing the release of government records related to John F. Kennedy's assassination. A total of 1,521 pages of once-secret military records covering 1962 to 1964 were declassified by the review board. So that's why we know now that this type of thing isn't a conspiracy. This has been declassified. This is all actually been just taken from Wikipedia. You can look this up yourself. And on Wikipedia, it actually gets into Operation Mongoose, which was a whole nother document and proposal for these not-so-true flags. And they wanted to create an incident which has the appearance of an attack on U.S. facilities in Cuba, thus providing an excuse for U.S. military to overthrow the current government of Cuba. It was also Operation Dirty Trick, which was another not-so-true flag plot to blame Castro if the 1962 Mercury-crewed spaceflight carrying John Glenn crashed, saying, the objective is to provide irrevocable proof that should the Mercury manned orbit flight fail, the fault lies with the communists in Cuba. And it says, this is to be accomplished by manufacturing various pieces of evidence which would prove electronic interference on the part of the Cubans. 
They even suggested covertly paying a person in Castro's government to stage a false flag attack against the United States. The documents from Operation Mongoose say, quote, The only area remaining for consideration then would be to bribe one of Castro's subordinate commanders to initiate an attack on the United States Navy base at Guantanamo. All right, so that was a little bit of Operation Northwoods and a little bit of Operation Mongoose. This is all out there. I will post links. You can download the whole document, read it, and really deep dive into it if you want to. But you get the gist. They wanted to kill civilians and attack the military, their own fucking military, and then blame it on Cuba to further an agenda, not to make the United States any better, but to make the country safer. They were actually going to kill people and make people scared that there were Cuban terrorists everywhere. Sounds familiar, right? If you were around after 9-11, if you remember how it was, and even now, they're starting to talk about, you know, terror cells and the border's been open. They might be setting something up. There's a conflict in the Middle East right now. They need to garner and manufacture consent from the public. But we ain't fools here at the Brave New World Order. We ain't going to fall for that. We got the receipts. We know their tricks. We're on to them. So that is Operation Northwoods, everybody. And a little bit of Operation Mongoose, which are the same thing. And before that, we explored the gemstone file, which was kind of new to me. I came along that recently. And I thought that it would be awesome to talk about it this week, which is the anniversary of the JFK assassination. So thank you all so much for coming along with me on this journey. The JFK assassination has fascinated me ever since I can remember. It's one of those national tragedies, the collective traumas that shaped the course of the world, the course of the nation for a long time, similar to 9-11. But I wasn't around for the JFK one. I just heard about it, learned about it in school, heard about the stories from my mom about what she was doing when it happened and how she remembers being in school and being sent home. It's just one of those major big events, and it's very fascinating. And as the years have gone on, more and more information has come out. Thanks again, everybody, so much. If you like this episode, like, share, leave a review, answer the Q&A on Spotify. You can reach out, email me. The Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on X slash Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. Thank you all again coming along with me on this journey. I will see you soon, or you'll be hearing from me soon. In the meantime, stay positive, question everything, think for yourself. Peace out. Much love.